Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello and welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. I'm Jason Grigla, and I am joined with my good friend, Dr. Jack Hinman. Next thing I want to talk about, when someone is the square peg in the round hole and they don't know who they are, they're in their, their lower brain. And when they're in their lower brain, they're just trying to keep their head above water. It's hard to swim with someone else and talk and connect when they're just trying to breathe. And so someone who is neurodivergent automatically has a higher level of anxiety and also depression, which statistically it's many times higher than the average. Someone who's in their lower brain, what does that do to attachment? It's like, uh, like you were like, I love like you have those magnets and you always take the opposite magnet to the other side and you try to push them together and you can sit there. It's like, kind of, it's actually a soothing kind of th- fun thing to do is to take magnets that have the, the exact same, you're kind of pushing, they just kind of polarize each other. So that it's also too, you look at research about etiology or what causes like autism. You have high rate of siblings that have autism. You have parents that maybe have autism too. So you got a neurodivergent parent, got a neurodivergent kid which might be their neurodivergency might be different. So you got two polarizing like magnets. And so it pushes together. And so, so I think the thing is it can really disrupt attachment. And also to that neurodiversity piece is that kids who are not neurodivergent, like the neurotypicals, like we don't like even a baby or even a younger child knows how to fill in the attachment gaps of their parents. So like, like they know how to respond to fill in the gap of their parents to be able to attach their parents. But somebody who is, who is autistic or like neurodivergent has trouble with that social reciprocity understanding to know how to fill in the gaps of their problems or the, or the gaps of their parents' attachment problems. So for example, you can have a parent has a disruptive attachment style, but have a child that's not neurodivergent, a typical kid, then learns how to like, maybe, oh, mom's really upset right now. I'm going to back off. Or mom's sad. I'm gonna go to mom and say, "Hey, mom, like, what's going on?" Or I remember when I remember when my son, like, he was brilliant at being attuned as a little as a little child. I remember my wife, his mom, was upset. He went to the cupboard and got got a piece of chocolate, and brought her a piece of chocolate, and it just warmed her heart. It just like melted her her sure. her being. And so, boom, there was an attachment. But a neuro kid who is like their brain is different. They don't they don't see those pieces to fill in the gaps. So that's there's, right. that's another piece of how it affects attachment. So they're not only not necessarily good at it because they're not aware, but it's also harder if they're in their fight or flight brain because they're just trying to survive. And I I think I think there's some early research that was really crappy, or, or at least some cultural beliefs. For example, that neurodivergence can't attach. One of the studies is that 47% of children diagnosed with ASD have secure attachment. So it's not quite half, but it's still a lot more than none, as if they can't mm-hmm. attach. From what I understand, tell me if I'm wrong. Those with neurodivergent brains attach the same way as other people do. Either it's secure attachment or it's not. There's just different ways to go about it, maybe, or there's more barriers to overcome. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah. So the thing is that attachment might look differently where like when I think typical ways to measure attachment might make a person who is autistic look like has an attachment disorder because the tool you're using is not sensitive enough to pick up on attachment. And so their attachment might be at a lower frequency. Like it might not be as avert as that. So like as a, like as a clinician, you're like kind of doing an observation of a client, you're trying to assess, assess them. You might go, you might overly, you might do a false positive and attachment disorder because their attachment looks differently. And so I think the thing is like being acute, being like, I'm sorry, not acute, being astute to like, like attachment. And so their attachment is there. And so that's, so it's really interesting about the attachment style of the parent. So parents who are typically secure can tune into that easier. Like they, they're, they're, if you're secure and you have, they have an autistic child who is maybe not doing a typical attachment kind of connection, but the parent was like, oh yeah, he's, he's off here playing right now, but we feel connected. Like he's off doing his own, like own thing. And he might be in a quote unquote in his world in a sense, but right. the mom feels connected. The kid feels connected, but it might not look, it might look differently than a, than a typicals in a sense. Can yeah, I agreed. And, and I think we talk about typicals and atypicals, the, the normal, norm, the, the average population, the neurotypical population, only 66% of them show secure attachment. So it's not like ASD attachment is that far behind, but I do think it looks mm-hmm. different. One of the ways that I can tell, one of the ways I look for, for a barometer of someone's secure attachment is, are they, are they at peace or are they in their lower brain? And that if they're always in fight or flight, it's hard. It's hard to know how often they can attach. And that's definitely a disruptor for attunement and other things around them. So I, I look at, are you, are they okay? And uh, they might be okay doing their own thing almost all day long and not needing a lot of social. And that's pretty mm-hmm. common, but others, they need social. I think another, another false cultural belief is that autists don't need relationships and don't care about relationships. It's they they have just as many social emotional needs as neurotypicals. They just experience it different. Yeah, and to go back on the like when you're in a high, you're in the the emotional part of your brain, the limbic system part of your brain, you can't really. It's really difficult to connect. And right. just think about yourself. Like think about when you're rush. Like you're really when like you're kind of rushing around trying to get out the door. And, and you're trying to get the kids in the car, you're trying to get to work on time. And then a neighbor comes by and wants to have a conversation with you about like a block party that they want to put on. Like, are you really feeling the need to connect at that time? No, you're like in a rush. You want to move on. You're feeling overwhelmed and you're probably not even listening to what they say. You're probably right. hearing like, oh crap, I'm going to have to like barbecue the chicken again this year versus they're saying, we're going to cater this year. You'd even hear that part of that catering part. You just, assume made assumptions you're not connecting and so that's kind of a way to kind of put yourself on their shoes like when you're when you're alert it you can't connect it it's it's next right. to nearly impossible and so back to what you're saying jason is creating an environment to help get them out of that limbic brain in a safe place feeling security developing skills around that so they can connect and and I think the thing is about like connection in we need to be open minded about what connection looks like, because we 
we're, we, we jump down the road of being very judgmental about online connection. And we really like people who, so I'm curious your thoughts about connection with like online communities and those things related to healthy connection and attachment. What are your thoughts on that, Jason? Well, I think online relationships for those who are neurodivergent are very real. They're not as shallow as I think the rest of us would assume. I think all mammals have have the need for human touch. I think neurodivergents, especially autists, are less likely to seek out physical touch as a as a way to attach or to be connected. And I don't think they, in general, are as physiologically touchy, but I still think they have the need for touch, but I think they, they reject it more. That's a, a scenario where neurodivergents are at higher risk for not getting their 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 touch needs met. I think it's called touch deprivation. And we talk about it all the time. As a matter of fact, sometimes with my students here, I refer them to a massage therapist before I refer them to a mental health counselor. That's just an example. I, I'm thinking about how many of my students go through life developmentally one or two or three steps behind their peers, and it puts them into that lower brain. The day they wake up and they've been playing Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon with their friends for six years, and it's the most perfect, awesome thing in the world. And their friends say, that's silly, that's childish, I'm not doing it anymore. And suddenly they lose their entire friend group. They can't even comprehend why they quit. They can't comprehend why they wouldn't want to keep doing it because it was so awesome. And, And they can't comprehend why they're interested in romantic things and dating and, and boys and girls and and even bodies and, and nudity and things like that. And they're going into their teen years. And that is that is happening almost at every developmental step of the way for a neurodivergent developmentally different scenario. And that puts them into that lower brain. So they're already at high risk for attachment disruption in so many ways. And that's that's the trauma side of being neurodivergent that is factored into being neurodivergent alone is hard. Having trauma is really hard. And I I know we've talked about it in the past. The three layers that we always have to heal, especially for our young adults, is the fact that they were neurodivergent in the first place. That's hard. It's hard being neurodivergent in a typical world. The second is the traumas, abuses, neglect, deprivations they went through where they weren't invited to parties. And that's, or people actually picked on them and bullied them. And that's a barrier to attachment to themselves and others. And then the third layer is the beliefs they got about relationships and people and themselves that they suck, that friends aren't worth it, that I'll ne- I don't want to date because I'll never get it anyway. I don't care about being in a relationship because they've been beaten down so much. So there's so many risks for attachment disruption because attachment for neurodivergence, it follows the same processes of safety and acceptance and vulnerability and understanding and attunement. So it, it breaks my heart when they have just as many emotional social needs as the rest of us, but they've been, but they're, it's like they're trying to, it's, it's like they're trying to breathe through a straw. They're set up to need to breathe air, running a race, trying to breathe through a straw. It just hurts all the time. It's hard. Yeah. You see high rates of depression, anxiety, even like attachment trauma with 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 people who are who are all, who are autistic because the world itself is traumatizing and and the experiences are traumatizing and and those things as well too and so I think I think 
early early prevention, early diagnosis is so crucial in that stage. And I'm glad we're doing that. We're 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 more like schools and institutions are becoming aware of like what had like using screeners, like in when you go to a like a pediatric kind of like an appointment and then you get a te- you get tested getting that 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 support early so then parents realize okay my kid's not being an asshole my kid is is different and so seeing somebody as an asshole versus seeing somebody different you respond to them quite differently and yeah and so and they're not just being oppositional and i and it's i love it where when parents get that diagnosis for their child they're like whoa okay they just it's a whole mind shift. It's like, it changes the way they see everything and they're like, and they respond differently. So then they start shaping their parenting, shaping the world in a less traumatic way. And right. It, it's a, minimize that. So it's so important to do early on in that process. So they're, they're already typically not good at social and communication skill sets, which is a barrier to attachment. They struggle being able to regulate and be aware of their of their attachers, whoever they are, parents or peers, they struggle to, what did you say, insulate attachment distress. Like they're not aware to do their part of the relational give and take. There's so many complexities to their diagnoses where they have spikes of ability and then, and then peaks and valleys where they learn that they're awesome. And in some ways they're pressured to be the best musician or mathematician or engineer in the world because they were doing amazing things. But then their weaknesses, they're the weak links in the chain that just kick their butts. And so they learn really quickly that they should have been here, but now they're down here. But they're capable enough to know what they should be able to do, and they can't. Some of the other issues, inflexible thinking behaviors, make it hard for them to be in relationships. If you've ever tried to be in a partnership or a team with someone who's inflexible and rigid, it makes it really hard and it's hard for them. They don't, they don't think other than this is the right way. Why would we even be discussing it? And it's not that they're selfish or even narcissistic. They're just pretty rigid and black and white in their thinking. But what I've experienced is that working with folks who are ASD is that they are in that, that, like you said, that trauma brain, they're super anxious. So all those pieces are a lot more intense. It's like, so they're, they're like, they have this, like their, their, their structure, their brain is maybe the, like maybe set up to be like, and like to have maybe some rigid thinking, then you throw, then you throw anxiety on top of that and it just goes out the roof. And so the way to start shifting that a little bit where like, where they start feeling more secure, feeling more safe, less anxious, they're able to sit and think they're able to develop some more meta metacognition around rigid thinking like oh yeah i'm a rigid thinker because when you're overwhelmed you can't even your self-awareness is really poor and they can start developing like well i have a tendency to to be a rigid thinker i'm neurodivergent and 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 then they they can realize well and then they can like maybe start lowering or adjusting the intensity of that stuff i've seen over time happen and 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 the awareness around those pieces improve too. And then when you become aware, you're able to, like, you're able to like maybe shift a little bit where you can connect. And so that's the cool part I've seen working with young adults who come in super anxious and see that like that evolve over time. 
So I'm, I'm looking at some of the slides from our presentation. I'm down on slide 14, social reciprocity. I want to compare some of these differences. When we look at social reciprocity for someone with attachment versus someone with ASD, they can actually look very similar, but not be attachments at all. It can just be ASD. For example, ASD people might seek out relationships for very personal interest reasons and not have much interpersonal interaction, just be all about them. Whereas someone in attachment distress might come across as all about them as well because they don't want you to get close. Whereas with ASD, they might want to get close, but they assume getting close means you talk about your interests and I'll, I'll sit here and not care. And then I'll talk about my interests. And I assume that you're going to care because of course I care. So there's, they can appear the same in many ways, but they actually have different root causes or foundational differences. Maybe you could talk about a little bit of the difference between someone who's a chameleon with attachment distress or someone who's an ASD masker and compare those a little bit. Yeah, we you 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 talk to a lot of parents that have children that have like early relational like trauma and they they talk about like they could just like they just all of a sudden they take on somebody else's identity. Like one minute they're a goth. I mean, there's some normal developmental stuff with like teens and everything to, to choose their identity, but they really choose that or change that very dramatically. And the thing is that they're just, they're feeling insecure. They're not feeling safe. They don't, they, so they feel like they have to, to kind of please or shift themselves into building that connection versus somebody who's feeling secure. They mean like, I'm okay with myself. I don't need to change my, change myself to be connected to somebody. And so it's out of safety versus like masking is more about like, I just want to fit in. Like, I don't want, I don't want people to know I'm different because you see this like with ASD one where, and especially later diagnosed adults is that they've been masking really well to a certain degree for a long time. And because they just don't want to be known as being different. So they just want to be, they just want to be known as being like everybody else. I just want to be like everybody else. But the thing is, it's been exhausting. It's been draining and they haven't been true to themselves, which affects their identity development. So that's the difference between the masking and the chameleon part with like attachment disruption versus ASD. Yeah. And, and with masking, I'm surprised how often I'll meet with someone who's maybe an older teen that has been masking their whole life and they don't they don't realize they're masking because they assume everyone else feels the same way they do and once they realize oh i actually can share what i really want i don't have to go to the football game or i don't have to go to the birthday party which would just stress the crap out of me that's that's masking pretending that i i like something that everyone else likes i can actually choose to do maybe one-on-one -on -one friend thing for my birthday i don't have to invite 20 kids and they don't realize they're masking and that's that's kind even, of a great developmental step or even the clothing like you can have maybe somebody who who typically identifies as female but has sensory issues with a dress or certain women's clothing and they just like I want to fit in but there's just hate wearing women's clothes and then yeah. they realize like what the hell like <laughs> I'm sick of like they finally this like let go of that rope be authentic. Like I'm going to wear men's clothes, but I'm still see myself as female. And so the thing is they start, once again, neurodivergent means very individualized, very individualized. And so, which right. means that they, they define gender, very individualized. They find the way ex you're expressing your gender and very, and so they kind of let go of those masking pieces or, or even like, I love 
eating Cheetos, but I hate the touch of Cheetos. And so I just been eating Cheetos and I hate it because the sensory feeling of the Cheetos on my fingers, but then I'm like, I, but I like the taste of them, but I hate to touch them. So I'll so just take a, a bag of, I'll use, I'll use actually, uh, gosh, the Chinese Bombs. things. What are those? Oh, like chopsticks. Chopsticks. I'll start using chopsticks <laughs> to eat Cheetos. I might look weird doing it. Like I'm in, oh, I'm, no, in, you I'm, do. in I'm on the, I'm on the college campus eating Cheetos with chopsticks because I don't want to touch them, but I want to eat them. But that's yeah. letting go, masking. Like, right. And you might, and another little quirky person might come along and go, I do that too. That's pretty cool. Let's <laughs> eat Cheetos. Yeah. I, one of my saddest things is when, when the world expects someone to be stereotypical male or female. And, and for example, a general, a generality would be a 14 year old female on the spectrum or neurodivergent doesn't grasp or care about the flirty, ultra-feminine, giggly, silly teenage phase that they go through. They don't relate to that at all. So they they swing all the way over to, I'm not female, therefore I must be male and I must I must rid myself of anything feminine. And that that seems to be really more disruptive than the fact that they're neurodivergent because they think they have to fit in to one or the other, or they're broken. And I, I love it when they can just accept, which is a process, right? And it's a process like we all go through. There's nothing different for neurodivergence than typicals in learning to accept who we are. I, I'm just not good at football. I, I suck at math. I, I'm not good at everything. I'll never be six foot six inches tall. So we all have to go through that. Another, another like different, to, go ahead. I like, it's a, I'd like to wear a dress. Because it's more comfortable than pants. Yeah. Does that mean that I'm female? No. <laughs> Does it mean I'm attracted to same sex? No. I just want to wear a dress. And I, I like that. It's like I think we're, I'm, I'm glad to see that we're moving that space where we can can open up what that means and having that space. Because back to the neurodivergent piece means very unique, and they're going to see things very unique, and they're going to see gender unique, and allowing them to be expressive their gender to be expressed the way they, the way they feel authentic is really important. And that's why yeah. I love that's That's the cool work. That's the fun work. That's cool. Seeing people move into that space. The authenticity is awesome. Thanks for joining us on this episode of autism and neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, Come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J A S O N D E B B I E.com. dot